Hi, I'm Doug Mandel, and welcome to Founders Council. Each show, we explore one issue or theme with a panel of guests who offer advice to other founders and our listeners who are part of the startup ecosystem. Thanks for joining us. In this first episode of Founders Council, we will explore the issue of how founders can use their entrepreneurial skills for good. We do this by featuring five guests who have each responded to the COVID-19 crisis in their own ways through action. From just showing up at the state capitol and becoming a vital member of the government's team, to testing an entire town, you will hear stories that will inspire you. More importantly, you will learn from these founders on areas including how they found the courage to act, how they balanced family and their jobs, and what advice they would give their own 28-year-old selves to get involved and make a difference. You will also hear some quotes that will move you. One that has stayed with me is the Special Forces motto, no one is coming, it's up to us. That really summarizes the attitude and energy of all of these guests. Our guests today are Robin Chan, Yuri Ingstrom, Raj Kapoor, Raina Kumra, and DJ Patel, all of whom are friends and know each other well through the startup ecosystem. Before we begin, I'd like to remind listeners that anything discussed here are not necessarily the views of myself or our law firm. Also, while the advice is very good, it certainly can't be construed as legal advice. I hope you enjoy the show. So let me introduce our panel and then we'll start addressing these questions. First, we've got Robin Chan at the top of my screen. I don't know how he appears at your screen. Raina Kumra, DJ Patel, Yuri Ingstrom, and Raj Kapoor. Uh, Robin, why don't we start with you? Thank you, first of all, for being with us. Uh, just a quick introduction about yeah. myself. I was uh, I started a few companies in China and the U.S. Uh, um, and based on that experience of building companies in Beijing and in San Francisco, uh, when the coronavirus uh, epidemic started, I realized that I could uh, add a unique contribution by bringing those resources to bear and providing direct access to supplies from China and getting it to the medical front line working with state governments and hospitals uh, throughout the U.S. And so we've, we started in late March. Uh, we, we rushed in so fast that uh, we had contracts with the state governments before we had a bank account with SVB. Um, and uh, now we have uh, have either landed or in flight have shipped uh, 8 million PPE across state governments, uh, large hospital networks, as well as clinics and uh, we call the long tail of needs, like for example, nursing homes. Got it. Thank you, Reina. Welcome. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thanks. It's, I'm happy to see everybody. Um, so I uh, uh, run a fund here in LA called the Fund LA, and um, I <clears throat> have been an entrepreneur, um, and I have also been an advertising industry executive, and I have also worked a lot around advocacy around tech ethics. Um, and I very accidentally fell into working on COVID when I made a very small donation of masks to a local hospital with some friends, um, Rob Kramer and Jen Lang. And we um, saw that the 26 masks that we gathered out of our earthquake kits 
uh, given to that hospital made such an incredible difference. We were applauded out um, by the staff and we thought, oh my gosh, we have so much more to do here. Um, and I had a little bit of bandwidth. And so we uh, thought, you know, what's the best way to get everyone engaged in local mask uh, collection and donations here in LA? Uh, we set up a text hotline with Twilio um, and I was also sitting in between lots of friends who were working on getting PPE to different places. So I was just watching as uh, friends like Robin were getting things manufactured and shipped over. I was um, volunteering for Project N95 at that time, and I was tracking the fraud rates, which were uh, hovering around 90%. Um, and I was very concerned that we weren't going to get enough shipment in. So um, we set up this text hotline essentially to get everything that was domestically available out of people's houses and into doctor's hands. Um, and that has since, uh, we're now announcing our partnership this week with Get Us PPE to take the text hotline nationally. And um, we're doing a couple other things around the long tail that Robin mentioned as well with seniors and food. Um, and we've also moved to fabric masks and um, homeless shelters and foster care system delivery. That's amazing. Thank you, Raina. Uh, Raj, you're one of my fr few friends I know who've actually personally been impacted by COVID. Could you talk a little bit about that and then what led you to get involved the way you're doing it? Sure. Uh, back in March uh, uh, 16th, I was an early adopter of the COVID virus, I think, amongst the cohort. And uh, when it was a pretty difficult time because there's a lot of unknowns, especially back in mid-March. Um, so every day kind of waking up and being not sure of what's going to happen in terms of symptoms. Uh, in, a, in a search for information, um, I found it was very difficult to find anything that was solid on what to do. Uh, and then also what happened is that as I um, progressed and I was feeling a little bit better, I noticed that other friends that who had the virus were nervous about talking out about it and were seeking help. So I went public uh, on Facebook and really just saw an outpouring of support through that process. I was also sent a number of interesting serology tests for people to see if I have antibodies. Uh, they literally came in lifts uh, to me from San Francisco and entrepreneurs trying to do good um, in, with UCSF and other institutions. And, I've, and I uh, probed into that and found that the testing um, and the research that's going on uh, was happening at a, a rapid pace, but getting patients recruited, whether it was for these serology tests, whether it was for testing treatments, whether it was for vaccine development, and of course, uh, massive amounts of observational studies just around people's symptoms and what happens was very haphazard. So uh, being an entrepreneur, um, I started a few companies and was a VC for also seven years now at Lyft, um, I, I decided to do something about it. And uh, first I was going to create it, but of course, first wanted to make sure I didn't reinvent it. So put a message out. And another friend, Jennifer Fonstead, found a startup that was uh, doing a registry for all sorts of conditions. And I talked to the CEO and they quickly agreed to cut a version of their registry uh, just for COVID related um, research and make it free and also on the consumer side, bring people in through a screener. And so we launched uh, mid-April. We have about 1,200 clinical research trials going on. 
Um, the need for patients is massive. We need 858,000 uh, patients for, or re I should say, yeah, volunteers for intervention trials uh, where you actually get something uh, due to whatever condition you're in, COVID positive, COVID negative, or if you're untested. And we need actually 20 million people to sign up for observational trials. And this is worldwide. So um, there's a massive uh, need. And so now we're just really focused on one of the other challenges as an entrepreneur is, is customer acquisition and um, trying to convince big companies like Facebook to spread the word about this when they're just trying to stop spreading misinformation. So this is the current entrepreneurial challenge that I'm knocking my head on. Wow. Well, thank you for that explanation. I should also mention to our viewers that one of the really special things about this podcast in particular is all of these guests know each other. Uh, they're actually all, all friends. Uh, the Silicon Valley ecosystem, the startup ecosystem uh, is, is pretty small in, in that way. And it's, it makes this uh, particular podcast, I think, unique and special. Uh, DJ, welcome. Thank you very much for doing this, especially given that you're traveling between uh, your home in Sacramento. I, I assume that's several times a week or during the week and on the weekends you're with your family. But tell us about how you got involved and what you're doing. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, always uh, not only an honor and a pleasure to be with, with everyone on this in this group. Uh, you know, if there's one thing I would say, if uh, it's actually hearing as what everyone's doing is a good reminder of what inspiration looks like. Uh, and so thanks for, for reminding me, giving me a little bit of fuel this, this morning. Uh, so I've been tracking COVID for a significant period of time, largely because of my day job. Uh, Devoted Health takes care of 17,000 senior citizens in three markets. And our members are uh, oftentimes quite frail, uh, close to the poverty line, and not always in the best of health. And so our job is, our mission is to take care of everyone like they were our own family. And watching this progress, the realization sunk in that we are going to need a much more aggressive effort uh, collectively. And to do that, what happened was a, a number of us, Todd Park, Bob Kocher, myself, just decided to drive up to Sacramento and say, we're here and we're here to help. And uh, we have a saying in the special forces uh, teams that I, I used to work with is that uh, no one's coming. It's up to us. And in the embodiment of that is you show up and you figure it out later. So we showed up. And as a result, we've been really working on a number of aspects uh, from California, including how do we think about uh, the impact of COVID, but also what is the prevalence of COVID? What should our testing strategy should be? How do we think about contact tracing? What is the progression and what's coming next for COVID and how to manage the, uh, the various aspects of, of COVID, not just as, as a state, but within small communities as well. There's many groups and populations that don't have access to care. Uh, and how do we ensure that those populations also have a shot at good recovery and the technology and the support systems that many of us are, are very lucky and fortunate to have? Thanks, DJ. That is that is an amazing story in terms of uh, just showing back, just showing up. And we're going to circle back and talk about that in a minute. Yuri, welcome. It looks like you're actually joining us from your car. Uh, would you tell us where you are and um, and then a little bit about you and your journey in terms of what you and and a handful of people close to you have been doing with in Bolinas? 
Thanks for having me, Doug. It's, it's really a pleasure. So um, I am in Bolinas, California. It's about an hour north of San Francisco. And as with each of the others on the call, uh, my background's as a founder. I started Jaiku, was sold to Google, and then a Ditto, uh, another company that was sold to Groupon, and then eventually became an uh, investor um, partner at YesVC, together with my partner, Katarina Fake. We're an early stage fund focused on companies powered by social movements. And um, I live in Bolinas. And uh, on March 20th, I read an article in The Guardian about the Italian village of Vo that had tested everyone and managed to eradicate coronavirus. And this was right around the time that Northern Italy was being hit really hard by COVID. And so I thought, could we do the same here for our community? And um, in three weeks, and I'm going to show you, I'm stepping out of the car on this uh, dirt field behind me here that I hope you can see, um, which is right next to the fire station. That's the Bolinas fire station there behind me. Um, we tested everyone in town. It's about 1,680 people is the population of Bolinas. And uh, we tested almost 100%. And then a few days later, um, did the same in the mission in San Francisco and uh, tested almost 8,000 people in total. Um, and it was pop-up testing. So, you know, these are literally, we used wedding tents and um, lots of volunteers. Uh, we raised the funding for it on GoFundMe and uh, found that there were zero negatives in Bolinas. Uh, we had 2.1% positives in the mission. And right now I'm figuring out how we continually monitor. And um, basically we want to keep Bolinas COVID free and um, eradicate the disease in San Francisco. And I'm talking to a bunch of other communities now that inspired by this also want to test themselves. And hopefully this will become much more widespread very quickly. That's, that's great. And for people who don't know, given that um, I think we're going to have people listen to this podcast all over the world. Bolinas is about uh, 45 minutes or an hour outside of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's a small, it's a small town, right? Yeah, 1,680 people, the population. Uh, we tested 1,876 uh, people. We had a few hundred uh, local first responders uh, from the West Marin County area. So we pretty much got everybody. And um, yeah, so one of the interesting discoveries for us was, um, you know, we thought testing wouldn't be, po it was just not possible. There were no tests and it's completely the opposite. And our discovery is just, you know, there's lots of lab capacity, but nobody was doing the actual testing itself. So actually the nuts and bolts of, you know, setting up uh, testing sites and uh, basically what we did is, you know, sent text messages and, you know, uh, social media to people in a, just a number of, you know, four days, uh, basically tested everyone. So it's totally doable um, for the price of one ICU patient. We tested the entire town. Wow. You know, one of the things that I've realized over the years in working with founders, and I think all of you share this in terms of your approach to this, this, this virus is thinking outside the box. I mean, this idea of what DJ talked about, which is just showing up to get things done, uh, and, all, and all of your stories really resonates with me in that regard. In fact, Robin, I think I spoke with you on my very first week 
uh, after I joined Withers, you had self-isolated in the middle of uh, another small California town, yes. thinking that you had COVID. I don't know if you did or not, but it was at that time that this idea of uh, getting face masks from China came, came to you, right? I mean, you were working on it as you were suffering from an illness. No, I, I, I did not have COVID, uh, fortunately, um, but uh, the, 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 the journey for us was, it's it just started informally with, with a bunch of friends online wanting to help friends who needed PPE. And so there were two groups of friends that were trying to bring small shipments of supplies to their Facebook friends. Um, and uh, based on the uh, friendships that we had and the history we just said, like, why don't we just all work together and do something bigger? Um, and instead of just giving to a few friends, let's go help the front line. And because of all the shared history, we were able to work together without even being in the same room. And, you know, getting to this new normal of remote work, we kind of instantly did that. Um, and so we actually had three people already in China, myself in San Francisco. Then we bolted on more friends from San Francisco. And then suddenly we became a founding team of, of eight. And... Uh, suddenly, and then, then I realized that, uh, oh, if we're going to help the front line, then we probably have to help them buy things. It would be really scary to borrow money into a random bank account in China. So we got to start a U.S. bank account. And so then, then we were like, okay, if you have to do that, then, uh, you know, the whole point of doing this is to not let them be uh, taken advantage by profiteers. So let's make it a nonprofit. So then it started to snowball into this whole organization and I accidentally became an entrepreneur again. <laughs> Um, and uh, really within the span of um, um, three days, we had our first partnership with the state of Hawaii, and then within five days, we had the state of New York, and then, and then it started snowballing from there. Um, and, you know, I think that the founder journey is, is really instructive because all of us have been entrepreneurs, and the, the idea of it is that we, we just have to just solve the near-term problems right in front of us. Uh, there was no playbook. We just we saw an obstacle and we had to resolve an obstacle and then we just kept going. Um, and I think the, the implicit trust of people who uh, understand uh, uh, are comfortable with navigating that ambiguity uh, helps a lot because uh, we just really have to move to uh, really support the front line. I mean, some of our, our, our listeners may, may be initially intimidated by that idea. I mean, all of you jumped in and took on really, really big projects uh, which you've probably done in your professional lives. I mean, I would ask you, uh, what advice would you give people who are thinking about taking a step like that, but saying, wow, this really sounds hard. I mean, uh, each one of you, uh, I'll just start with Raina and, and, uh, in terms of what you initially started and what it turned in, into. Uh, were you intimidated at first? And how did you leverage your network uh, in order to, the way Robin talked about his, in order to move forward with this? Yeah, I mean, it started so small. It started with three friends and a hospital locally here in Santa Monica. It wasn't at all, you know, a huge vision when we started. Um, and then it just had a very natural growth cycle. But, you know, I think all of us are people who run towards fires instead of away from them. So we have some level of skill set of um, understanding like what we're going to do when we get to that fire. Maybe some of us sometimes. Um, and I think uh, for, for, for what we did with Supply Save Lives, it was um, just like 
understanding that there was a lot of people in LA who had been through tons of fires, uh, you know, in California who had N95 masks somewhere stocked up in their garage. Maybe they forgot about it or not. And we just needed to unlock um, either the guilt or the shame that they were feeling to donate them to us. And, and so it just was very simple. Our ask was very simple. We kept everything very simple. We made a text hotline that was very simple. And it was just like, we will relieve you of uh, this surplus mask issue that you have. And we will, we will help you without any contact or any danger to yourself, get them to doctors and nurses. So you can feel like you've participated, but kept yourself safe. So we just kept everything very psychologically simple for our, you know, target audience. Um, <clears throat> but I think if you are someone who has had a lot of experience and you, um, you know, you know what you're doing and you know how to scale things, like that's where I think the entrepreneurial um, expertise comes in. Um, in my case, I knew because I had started nonprofits before and I had worked with lots of nonprofits before that I was absolutely not starting a nonprofit. <laughs> it was very, very much the thing that I already had the experience with. And I said, no, that's not the direction for us. We're going to stay very grassroots and keep things very simple. And then we will um, merge with a larger organization at the right time. Um, so I think experience matters, but I think if you have the drive and you have the will and you really just want to solve a problem, you can solve it at any scale. It's still helpful. Let, let me turn to DJ and Raj, because I know both of you uh, and I know your partners have been behind you in what you're doing in different ways. Uh, DJ, I heard you speak recently about uh, your efforts in Sacramento. And the first thing that you did before you talked about what you were doing is you thanked your wife and your family for allowing you to do this. Uh, and that really resonated with me. Can you talk a little bit about your journey here? Because it really was quite a disruption uh, in terms of your normal life. Not that it was easy before. Our viewers may not know that DJ splits his time now between uh, uh, um, Silicon Valley and Boston. Now you're injecting a new location, Sacramento, uh, and you have a family and an amazing family at that. How did you do it? Well, the, the, fir the first is I guess I have my blood for pain. <laughs> and, and, you know, as, as you get older, you, you also realize that you have other responsibilities. And, and I've been exceptionally uh, blessed that, that my wife, Devika, and, and my kids really both not only appreciate the importance of mission, but the, the um, need for people to really take, take, uh, take their skills and apply it in unique ways. And so they gave me permission to, to really do this. I, I never really do this without really checking in with them. Uh, and there's a lot of concerns because we're, it's, you know, there's, you know, every time you're out, we're not sheltering in place because we're at risk because we're, having to be up there and, and work with different teams and try to figure out what's happening, whether it's surge sites or other activities. But the, the thing that I think is, is more than anything, you know, I, I was just jotting down and I was just thinking of all the people that could be on this call that have done amazing things in our network. And, you know, and, and the list is long. The, the, the list is incredible. And, and so what, what I think we're seeing here is this, this, this version of a call to arms and this ability and, and this idea that we all have unique skill sets, but there's one domino that tips them all over is that you just start. You just start with a harebrained idea. You call some friends and you say, what about this? 
And that starts to snowball. But you have to start with the calm. Because if you're not the spark that is that beginning, nothing happens. And, and it's not that I think that we're all founders or other things. It's that we have a desire to do more than we can, than we can do by ourselves and help get other people on there. And we just have to find a way to make that happen. And what I think we're lucky enough is because we've been through founding experiences, we know what it means to have the tenacity to know that you are going to run, bang your head against the wall. The first two weeks, I was just sitting in a conference area in, in the state capitol, and now I'm sitting inside a filing cabinet room in, in the Special Operations Command Center. Because it's not the glamorous work. It's the unglamorous work of figuring out how to get a, a, a tent, a wedding tent set up. It's, it's the unglamorous work of just finding somebody who will take your call and just being up late at night to do these things or to find some friends and figuring out who to contact at a hospital and having the courage just to walk in and saying, anybody need these? That's, that's what really drives us at the end of the day. And it's what I think I would love for more people to do because COVID's not going to be over anytime soon. This is a new paradigm and we have to figure out what the world is going to look like for us collectively. And that means that we have to reinvent nearly every aspect of our lives from how we actually think about how we communicate with each other, how we interact with each other, how we live, but most importantly, how do we take care of each other? Not just as family units, but as communities of support, state systems and federal systems and the whole world. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about in terms of how uh, the list is long in our network. Uh, I actually felt guilty that I couldn't include everyone I wanted to include on this particular uh, podcast. I, I frequently think about Nancy Lublin because who's our friend uh, and is the CEO and founder of Crisis Text Line. Uh, I'm involved in that as a, as a donor and as an advisor. I know a number of you are as well, but one of the things that has really hit me over the head is Nancy's emails uh, on a regular basis about what she's seeing in the, in the country in terms of how this uh, uh, disease is impacting us from a mental health perspective. And, um, you know, seeing that and seeing those statistics really hits at home that this isn't just a disease that's impacting us. There's uh, the way we, we hear in the news, but there's a lot of other offshoots about it that are going to be traumatic for a long time. Raj, what about your situation? Because I know that your, your wife and partner is a, um, is a physician. And uh, I, I, I know you, you also, as a family, have been dealing with COVID and its impacts as well as uh, um, what each of you have been, have been doing. Can you talk about your, your response as a family? Yeah, unfortunately, I gave her the gift of COVID too, I'm pretty sure. And also, I think I gave my two older kids, I have four children, uh, so the two teenagers, the gift. And so, uh, you know, timing is never great for any entrepreneurial activity. There's always an excuse of why uh, it's not good timing to do it. But, um, you know, and, and of course, my day job isn't exactly unaffected at Lyft uh, by this crisis. So there's, there's certainly a lot going on. But at the same time, what I've always told my children also is that um, when you're in a privileged situation like we are, um, I kind of use a venture economics rule in giving back, which is that um, 
you've been given privilege. Your job is to return a multiple out to society. And if I keep on saying that to my children, but don't act on it, you know, what kind of uh, role model am I? Um, and so I think this was something that was super supported also, like DJ said, for my, for my family, because of the mantra that my wife and I uh, try to instill in, in our children about that. And, um, and Lydia has been very involved. And in fact, um, she helped come up with the idea. Um, she's acted as a medical advisor. Um, she's been active in also expanding this registry to also connect plasma donors, which is a critical issue. Both of us have also donated plasma in the last week. Um, and, and so that's a big challenge that's out there as well. And it's an increasing challenge. So I think getting them involved is, uh, is one thing that's really helpful. But um, really, uh, if, if your family's aligned with what your values are, these decisions actually become easy at the split second. Okay. Yuri, in terms of um, taking on the task of testing everyone in Bolinas, how did you leverage your, you know, your, either your close friends, your network, or, I mean, I think you even got people who work for you at your fund, because I know my friend David uh, was up there in Bolinas. Uh, how did you do that, and um, who did you call on? Well, I think the good part about um, a crisis is that people just throw themselves uh, into a project when they see that there's something they can do to help. Right. And so I think, you know, everybody touched on that already. Um, yeah. David Pickerel, um, who I have Doug you to thank for uh, introducing me to, who's, who's my colleague now at our fund. Yeah, he was driving around, uh, you know, the North Bay hardware stores and restaurant suppliers picking up PPE, literally uh, painters, Tyvek suits and uh, rubber gloves and all the other materials that we needed to source in order to protect ourselves when we were running the testing. And so, um, yeah, it's just one of these things where, you know, um, you, and I think this also goes for founding a company. When you found a company that um, has a real mission, it's addressing some true need and, you know, people will just throw themselves at the opportunity to help. Right. And so, you know, um, it's rare. It's rare. And those are all often the best outcomes, you know. So um, I, I guess the learning for me in, in, in this is just, you know, choose your battles, right? Um, there is so much opportunity when you expose yourself to real needs that you, you know, spend your life uh, going from project to project like this um, anywhere in the world where right now you can, you can make a difference and people, you know, we instinctively respond to that when we realize we can make a difference. And it happened here. We had over a hundred volunteers. It all came together literally in a matter of days. You know, some people were directing traffic or painting signs or, you know, we had a team of Airbnb engineers that pulled all nighters for two weeks to build a custom HIPAA compliant platform from scratch uh, for, you know, managing the um, appointment bookings for the testing, you know, associating samples with, with patients, um, communicating the results back by SMS. Um, you know, this is an enormous amount of work that got done literally just in a matter of days. And um, what's more inspiring than that, right? Nothing. And I think that in, 
in the valley particularly, uh, you know, that oftentimes uh, somehow gets kind of forgotten about because we talk so much about uh, venture financings and, you know, returns and, you know, billionaires or whatever. But um, all of that uh, is just an, it's a byproduct of, of people who care, right? Coming back to what DJ was saying about, you know, fundamentally kind of coming back to that question of uh, we're going to need to reevaluate, um, you know, how we care for each other. And this is one of those ways, right, is to contribute your time and not ask for anything in return, right? So along, along with that um, very sage piece of advice, let me ask everyone here, um, you know, you mentioned David who works for you. Uh, David is, I think, 28 years old. And he's really who I think of as the, as the real target audience for this, this podcast. It's someone in Silicon Valley, uh, a, young, uh, a young man or woman who's, who hasn't yet made it the way you all have made it, uh, but is out there in the midst. And they're probably listening to this and they're probably saying, how do I, how do I make a difference? How do I do this? So I know we've all been asked a, a variation of this question, but what, would you, what advice would you give to your 28-year-old self as you think about what you were doing back then, a uh, long time for me, uh, going back there? Uh, what would you do or what advice would you do for the listener who's thinking, uh, okay, I want to do something. How do, I, how do I do that? Why don't we start with DJ and then we'll just go around. We're already at 30 minutes and I want to be very mindful that I'm eating into your Saturday morning here. So uh, I think this will be a good question to hear from, from each of you on. DJ? No, it's such an interesting question about uh, the age of 28. So when I was 28, I had just uh, entered my first, first time in public service. So I had just gotten married. Uh, was, my wife was in Manhattan. I was in, uh, in, in Maryland, just outside DC. And I jumped into public service uh, largely after 9-11. And, you know, I had an incredible amount of adventures around the world. Uh, I didn't, wasn't really burdened by uh, trying to manage a family with kids. I could, I, we could travel a bunch. Uh, I got to work on an amazing things. You know, Raina was at the State Department also. And, and you know, I think about the, something that Ash Carter, who's the Secretary of Defense, uh, has, has said and has stuck with me is that security is like air. You only know you need it when you don't have it. And it is something that really resonates. That is, we're realizing what it means not to have air right now. And that the things that we took for granted. And the, the thing that also he says that I think is really important is the stories that you tell your kids and the things that you remember. Like, are we gonna talk about the stories of the days of, of what we did in our companies? Or are we gonna talk about what we did in this moment? what will be the stories that we tell the future generations? And my firm belief is that, is that these moments in time are the things that not only develop your character, but they also solidify the kind of person that you want to be. And, and everyone here on, that, on this exemplifies this. This is why we're friends. This is why we would pick up a phone call if that, if, as soon as that number appears, would not even hesitate. If somebody needs help, we would jump in right away because we all have that common aspect of DNA. 
And it all starts with this, this notion of what does it mean to give back? As Raj said, what does it mean to give multiples on return? And you don't have to be successful and wealthy and all those things to do it. You, you, can, you have to give your time. Start with your time. And some of those things that people don't realize is that first bit when I was 28 and, and you know, a, a young academic, that's actually what gave me a lot of the ideas for what became data science. So these ideas, it's not just a one-way thing. These things come in waves and they help educate you, they help teach you. But the number one thing that I just emphasize is that if you have an idea, maybe you don't have an idea, but get a group of people together on a call, a phone call, a video call, whatever it is, and just ask, what are the problems of today? And is there something we can learn? And you may have a hundred dud ideas. If you have one idea that starts to tip a domino that cascades, that's going to change the whole way the towns and cities and counties and states and nation and internationally really act and really figure this out. Because it's, it's what the we means in this. It, and I know it sounds cliche, but it is what we the people mean. That is where the origination of those, the, the sentiments came from, is we, is, is a community. And, and, and that's, that everyone has to take a form of civic responsibility to do. And some of that is going to be corporate. Some of it's going to be nonprofit. But fundamentally, it's, it's an attitude. Thanks, DJ. Robin? Uh, you know, when, when, a, when a young entrepreneur asks me for advice, I often give them two pieces of advice. One is to uh, figure out how to be valuable rather than expensive. Um, and that's a toggle for a lot of people that think about the early stages of their careers and looking for the promotion and looking for that um, extra salary, but really thinking about the long term of how to create a, a body of experiences that make you fundamentally valuable um, to the world. Um, and then the second thing um, is um, to run towards the hard problems because if you, if you can attack the hard problems, you are fundamentally valuable. Um, and um, it's, it's often easier to think what's in um, probably what's in front of you, but the, the world has, is such a complex place and there are so many ways you can contribute and, and everybody has a unique superpower. It's really interesting that uh, DJ kind of triggered me because I, I, I forgot that I was, uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, I actually uh, went to work for the Red Cross at Ground Zero and was just offering translation services for the, the affected neighborhoods in Chinatown. I actually completely forgot. That's, that's, that's so long ago. And, and I, I, Doug asked us earlier, uh, gave us a list of questions about, uh, about whether you did public service. And sometimes, you know, you don't realize that, you know, when things happen to you or, or to the world just happens, um, how do you react to it is really the calling. It's really, you know, that moment where you say, okay, it, do I have anything to give? And at that time I was like 21, 22. And what did I, you ask yourself, what could you do at that time? And well, I, I had uh, another language. And so, um, and in this context, you know, with more experience, I could bring more, uh, more ways to help. Um, I think anybody in any part of their life journeys, if they have, have had um, some experience, um, that counts. And that is your contribution. And uh, you just have to figure out how to apply that to the right context. So 
Um, everybody has a way to help. Thanks, Robin. Uh, Raina? Uh, so my advice to my 28-year-old self or other 28-year-olds, um, if you don't yet have children, do everything you possibly can because you are so much more productive before you have kids. Um, I uh, At that time, I think I... Um, I also, yeah, I was always doing um, work that was sort of, you know, half professional and half giving back. And just being a giver was very natural. I grew up with parents who uh, really instilled that value. Um, and it was a wonderful thing to incorporate into daily life. Um, I could do a lot more of it. I think now, you know, I have a three and a six-year-old. It's it's complicated. It's uh, my time is not all my time anymore. And I would work on this all day long and think about how to solve these problems all day long. But I have, I have little ones to take care of and a household to run. Um, so I think that that piece is, is really important. If you have the time, um, be as productive as you can and um, help as many people as you can when you if you have the will. Um, and then the other thing that is uh, always comes to mind um, around times like these is that Lenin quote that um, there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. And we have seen this post 9-11, uh, we've seen this 2008, and these are the times when people are standing up with their wild and crazy ideas and new collisions and new friends and new crisis related bonds are forming. And so much comes out of these times that just being awake and aware right now is um, you're very fortunate to have that and being able to have um, time to work on any of these problems. I think jump in and, and just start and you don't know where it will lead, but every little thing that you do could be helpful to somebody. Thank you, Raina. Uh, Raj, what about you? Yeah, going back to the 28-year-old self, I mean, even going to the current self, the, I think the, the key is not approaching one of these things and saying, oh my God, it's overwhelming, I have to do a billion things. It's really figuring out your comparative advantage. I'm not sure what my comparative advantage was at 28, but now I feel like it's certainly not coding. Um, it's not um, calling up suppliers necessarily for these research clinical trials. But what I felt like my comparative advantage was, was being a producer and bringing the elements together and, and using my voice um, to drive customer acquisition through leverage. And so it was figuring out, because there's no way I could take this on, build it from scratch and do it, was to figure out what is the area that I can really contribute in um, and then allowing and also finding other people uh, to do that. I think when we're young, we think that we have to take on the world alone, and that's just not the case, and it never happens. Got it. That's a great, great answer, Raj. Thank you. Yuri, what about you? I don't know. You know, I, I think that, uh, I think it's okay to be lazy, <laughs> and uh, I think the best founders are like that. Um, you know, so many people are, think that it's about working really hard. And then you just end up working on stuff that doesn't matter. Um, the things that actually matter, like, you know, it's not everything. It just doesn't happen all the time. So sometimes it can take 10 years um, before that moment appears, like, you know, whatever, COVID-19 or I don't know. I guess when I was 27, 28, you know, that's what they call Saturn returns. It's when, uh, you know, I guess in astrology, uh, you know, you're, 
at a moment in your life when you discover your real self. Um, and indeed, if you, you know, I, you know, it's when I started my, my first company, uh, finally, after, you know, dropping out of a PhD program, um, you know, after working for, I don't know, six years on a, on a, on a thesis, right. That was pretty much done. Um, which, you know, it was a drastic change. So, um, but I, you know, I guess, you know, I realized, oh, uh, I would like to build a social, you know, mobile network and uh, didn't went and did that. And so similarly, you know, when I look back, it's like, well, you sort of um, probably ideally are ready when the opportunity presents itself so that you can jump in, right? Um, and if you constantly beat up yourself for not working hard enough and not striving hard enough and you essentially work for these external rewards, like I need to get into Harvard or I need to get in straight A's or I need to make at least $250,000 by the time I'm 25 annualized um, or whatever, right? Then I think you're just much less likely to be intrinsically driven to kind of jump in when the opportunity presents itself because you can't really control it. You know, I think that's the crazy part about entrepreneurship. And I mean it in a general sense, in the sense that everyone talking about their coronavirus stuff are also entrepreneuring. Entrepreneurs got to entrepreneur, right? Um, but it means that you're okay with the fact that it can take a long time before the right moment presents itself. And that's when you move, right? So having these long periods of, I don't know, like I read a lot of books, you know, I just hang out in Bolinas. Um, or like, you know, Ryan, I think was saying, hanging out with your kids. I got, I have three kids, you know, um, and it's okay to spend 10 years just, you know, homeschooling them if that's the thing, right? But then it doesn't mean that you can't uh, be an entrepreneur and do something world-changing uh, when the moment happens, right? These things like, you know, that beautiful quote, uh, the Lenin quote, uh, right, about it happening, you know, a decade happening in a week. That's, what's, that's what it's about. So, you know, just be okay with yourself. Uh, you don't always need to be executing on plan. It's like, I guess what I would tell myself. It's great advice, Yuri. Well, I, I want to thank each of you again for giving up part of your Saturday morning to talk with us. Uh, there's so many great uh, nuggets of wisdom that came out of this discussion. And um, thank you once again for your time. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Thanks everybody for all your great work. Okay. Thank you.